Okay, well, you're still here. I didn't see anyone leave. That's good. So uh, you're going to trust me at least far enough to listen to what I have to say about that admittedly difficult passage. Um, And uh, we're talking this morning, and maybe it's good that a number of our uh, regulars aren't here because it's fewer people to scare off, but we're uh, talking about church discipline. Um, But I think that if we pay attention to this passage, though Paul has some very challenging words for all of us, he also has some very encouraging words as well. And uh, for those of you that pay attention to sermon length and care about such things, and I know who you are, uh, this sermon might be a little bit longer, so I'm going to dive right in because, as you could see, there's a lot to cover in this passage. But for those of you that have been around for a couple of weeks, I hope that you're beginning to pick up on some of the patterns in this first letter to uh, the city or the church at Corinth, and you're beginning to see similarities between issues that Christians in the city of Corinth are dealing with and Christians in the city of Portland are dealing with, or at least should be. They were people in a church that were struggling to keep their identity in a very pluralistic, in a very multicultural city. And what we've seen as we've been walking through this letter is that the Corinthian church was plagued with a couple of things. It was plagued with ambition and elitism, and it was plagued with pettiness and rivalry, judgmentalism and theological arrogance. And here we see another sort of infection, that they were infected with the idea that they were free to live entirely how their conscience dictated, entirely how they wanted to. And Paul responds, as you heard, with some very hard words for them, and ultimately, I think, for us. But Paul's hard words are meant to create soft hearts, and that's what we're about this morning. And we're going to look at this just from three different perspectives, the diagnosis that Paul gives, the treatment that he recommends, and then the rationale for both of them. So first of all, diagnosis. What we see here is that Paul is addressing hypocrisy on two levels. One is that there are certain things that are going on in the church at Corinth, and the church is just complacent, that they allow these things to happen without intervention or concern whatsoever. And then we also see the hypocrisy that was mentioned of the man who is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, we talked about the fact that there's been this ongoing correspondence between Paul and the Corinthian church. We have two letters here. We know of at least two others that are not in the scriptural canon, but they had a close relationship. And apparently, they had been asking Paul questions about different things that were coming up in the church. Paul, can you help us address this? Would you talk to us about this? Would you weigh weigh in on these particular issues? But apparently… They didn't bring up this little issue of this man who was sleeping with uh, his father's wife. And so what Paul says to them is, uh, I know what's going on. He says, it is actually, actually, you get this, actually, you didn't tell me this, but I know. Actually, it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. Pagans is just shorthand in this context for Gentiles, for those outside of the church And Paul is telling them, I've heard what's going on. Look, it's posted on YouTube, it's on Twitter, it's gone viral. Everyone is talking about it except you when you wrote me to weigh in on some of the matters of this church. Not only had they not told him, but they had this sort of uh, perverse pride 
in the fact that this guy was doing this as a Christian. Look how free we are in Corinth. Look at the liberality that we have. Look at how we are free in the gospel. We can do whatever we want. But they weren't going to tell Paul. Well, Paul finds out, as I said, and he says there's six sexual immorality in your midst, this word porneia, and it occurs five times in chapters five through seven. So we're going to address it a couple of times this week and the next couple of weeks. Well, adultery would be a subset of porneia, and also what would have been called incest in the ancient world, in the ancient context, that this son sleeping with his father's wife. It was against not only the Old Testament law that the Corinthian church was essentially deciding not to live by, but it was also against Roman law and Roman sensibilities. So the pagan world is looking from the outside into the church with disgust. This is going on in your churches. We don't even do that. They're looking on with disgust. Now, keep in mind that this man is not just a random guy. He is a member of this church, and he's addressed as such. The woman was apparently not a member of the church, and this isn't just sort of a flash-in-the-pan affair. You know, they sort of fell in bed with one another, oops, and then went about their, you know, lives and got beyond it. This is not what is happening. What is happening is an ongoing, in-your-face, reckless relationship and the church thinks it's just fine. Well, some of you here maybe have trouble with the church's teaching on morality, particularly with human sexuality, that Christianity has these strange convictions, these strange ideas about what people should do in their bedrooms. And who are we to try and tell anyone else what to do? And as indelicately And as unevenly as our rules have been applied from time to time, the rules have a purpose. And the rules governing relationships, particularly sexual relationships, are not to prevent something pleasurable, but they're to protect something precious. The rules and the ethics from the Bible are not to prevent something pleasurable, but to protect something precious. This man and his essentially stepmom were not only committing what in most cultures has been uh, considered as heinous, but in those days they lived in multi-generational households. So you've got a house that probably has 10 to maybe 20 people living in it in one room, or not in one room, but in one uh, roof. And this is going on, and they have no problem with it. The children are looking on, the grandchildren are looking on, the grandparents are looking on. And apparently this dad, for whatever reason, is out of the picture, and the son just steps in, in this multi-generational household, and it's perfectly okay, in full view of everyone. But notice this, and this is startling, and this should sort of upset our Western individualistic sensibilities, because who does Paul chastise for this affair? Is it the man? Is it the woman? Well, it's not the woman because apparently she's not a member of the church, and so Paul doesn't have jurisdiction over her life. And he says later in the text, who am I to judge those outside the church? But you see, it's not the man either. Even though Paul certainly knows who it is, he doesn't say, hey, guys, go talk to Bob. He needs to knock this off. 
He doesn't address Bob or the man. No, he scolds the church. He scolds the community. And you, plural, you are proud of this. You're arrogant and you're, in fact, boasting about it. Paul not only implies some level of community responsibility, but they're proud of it. They're boasting about it. What seems to be going on in this boasting, why are they proud? Well, what seems to be going on is that they have some sort of inappropriate application of the freedom of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Well, maybe in your life you've thought, well, you know, all is forgiven in Christ, and so therefore I don't really have to deal with this issue in my life. Everything is settled at the cross, and therefore I can sort of, you know, live how I want within reason. And as long as no one knocks on my door and asks me to stop, you know, and as long as I'm not harming anyone, then I can sort of live how I want because I'm forgiven. The Corinthians are saying, look at this guy's freedom in Christ. Isn't it cool? Look at what's happening in our community. We get Jesus and we get to live how we want. And Paul even repeats back to them in the next chapter in verses, uh, verse 6-12. What they say is, all things are lawful for me, so it doesn't matter what I do. That's essentially what they're saying. And Paul is saying to them in no uncertain terms that this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel and of the nature and purpose of grace. He's pointing out the incongruity between their self-perception, that is, I'm in Christ, I'm in the church, how they think of themselves, and what's going on in reality. And in so doing, he gives us a profound spiritual insight. Because, as we all know, we're all going to blow it in gigantic ways, in public, disgraceful ways sometimes, but also in just a myriad of everyday ways. We're going to blow it okay? But what's most important isn't, first of all, the sin. It's not, first of all, the behavior, but it's our response to it. Do we revel in it like the Corinthian church was apparently doing? (laughs) It's funny. You did it again. Do we revel in it? Or do we pass it off as insignificant? It's not a big deal. I'll deal with this some other time. Or Do we, as Paul commends, do we mourn? Does it sadden us? Does it prick our consciences? Do we mourn as a community? Do we mourn as individuals over the brokenness and the heartache in our lives and the way that we harm ourselves and harm other people? You see, friends, God says He is close to who? The perfect? No. Not close to the perfect or the well-behaved, but to the broken hearted. And that's the incredible good news of the gospel. It's that though sin, whether gigantic or small, exists in your life, that if you're brokenhearted about it and you mourn over it, that's the place that God meets you. He is close to the brokenhearted. You see, friends, the gospel says that it's not your behavior that secures for you a place in God's kingdom but it's a broken heart that allows the kingdom to flood in. It is not your behavior that secures for you a place in the kingdom, but it is a broken and contrite heart that allows that kingdom to flood into your life and to begin to change you 
from the inside out. That's Paul's diagnosis, first of all. And now we need to deal with the treatment. And here's where it gets even more difficult because he has some really hard things to say. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed among you, from among you. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Now, don't run for the door, okay? Because we have some cultural translation to do. And some of the imagery that Paul is using, he is reaching back into the Old Testament, which may not be familiar to you. What we're talking about is, in fact, church discipline. I don't know if that makes it easier or harder to hear, better or worse. And maybe this is where you say, this is exactly what scares me about you Christians. You're heavy-handed, you're judgmental. Who are you to tell anyone what to do? Well, how many of you have seen, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you seen the, the movie Spotlight? This is the story of where the Boston Globe, secular newspaper, intervenes on behalf of predated upon children in the Catholic Church. The powers that be in the church basically kept it under wraps, and they moved priests around to other parishes in order to hide their behavior. And they allowed these priests to continue getting a paycheck, continue having uh, a role in the church, and they didn't go public with it. And there was very little that they had to, uh, in terms of, of discipline. The church was tolerating a sin that in Paul's parlance, even the pagans don't tolerate. And what of the literally hundreds of churches who were harboring and reassigning these sexual predators? What if the churches had intentionally addressed these things instead of simply moving them to another parish and letting it be someone else's problem? What if today churches intervened when spouses or children were being abused physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually? And what of the countless examples of pastors who are abusing their authority in the church? What if the church took these things seriously? That is church discipline. And that's something that we don't do actually enough. It's harsh at first, but I know that you know in your bones and in your experience that it's right and necessary. Notice the purpose of the treatment. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. As harsh as the treatment may be, the purpose is to bring life The purpose is to bring repentance and health. You know, if you think about how advanced our health care is in the West, okay, and how do we treat cancer? We give the patient poison. Now, I know that there's some doctors and some doctors in training and so forth, so please don't correct me. This is an oversimplification, but we basically give them a pill or put something in their veins that attempts to kill them slowly enough that the bad cells die first. That's our treatment for cancer. We introduce poison into the system, and it's an extraordinarily uncomfortable treatment, but it's designed to do what? To restore that person to health and to life, to give them a second chance on life, 
And this is essentially what's happening here. This is essentially what church discipline is all about. It is introducing something that may seem harsh on the outside that is designed to bring life and flourishing. Paul is recommending a treatment that is quite severe, frankly, but his intentions are ultimately for the health of the person as well as for the community. And this is exactly what Jesus says, frankly. By the way, another thing that cancer can help us understand is what Paul is talking about when he talks about this word leaven. And we don't have a great deal of time to go into this. So cancer helps us understand it because cancer, like leaven, spreads to infect the whole system. And either through recalcitrance or indifference, a community that continually tolerates conspicuous sin and hypocrisy in its midst is like a person who knows they have cancer and just decides not to do anything about it. Please keep this in mind, okay? Paul's solution here is for one kind of sinner and one kind of sinner alone. This is not a recipe for dealing with weak, struggling people. Church discipline, hear me, is not a recipe for dealing with people who are struggling and broken and weak. It is for one kind of people. Because if struggling people had to be removed from the congregation, we would have to close our doors. No one would be left, not even me. That's not what church discipline is for. These words are for people who arrogantly and pridefully refuse to deal with the ugliness and the hypocrisy in their own hearts, particularly those people who are harming others, who blatantly disregard how their actions affect other people and how their actions bring discredit upon the community of Jesus. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord." Hand this man over to Satan is, is simply a highly stylized rhetorical way of saying, put this person outside of the church. That this man in this circumstance is choosing over and over to flaunt this incestuous relationship and is intentionally choosing to live in a way contrary to everything that Christianity stands for. So therefore, it's time to treat this person as he is asking to be treated as, what, a non-believer. Far from judgmental, this is actually validating his own choices. It's actually allowing his decisions to dictate the consequences and dictate his status. They are someone, this person, though ostensibly part of the church, the visible church, that the gospel doesn't appear to have taken root in their lives in any, val- value, uh, any visible way. And so instead of treating them as a fellow believer, the church begins to treat them as someone who has not yet come into faith, not yet fully come into the church. Paul says the correct posture isn't to celebrate this man's actions, nor to presume that his belonging to the visible church means definitively that he's come to Christ. Hopefully those two things go together, but they don't always. Instead, and this is very important, treat him as an unbeliever so that we can begin inviting him to find his way back as a prodigal son. Treat him as an unbeliever so that 
we can begin the process of inviting him back as a prodigal son, inviting him to Jesus perhaps for the very first time. Church discipline, therefore, is never, hear this, never punitive. It is always restorative. Any action of the institutional church on behalf of someone and for the community is always restorative, at least meant to be, and not punitive. And most of it, 98%, 99% of it, takes place informally. What do I mean by that? I mean that church discipline is just one tool in the toolbox. Let's say it's the hammer for the sake of argument. Formal discipline is the hammer in the toolbox. But when someone gets out of line, you don't just immediately pull out the hammer and smash them in the face. That's not what it's for. There are other, lots of other tools that are far more effective under most circumstances. Maybe belonging to a community group can be the, the socket wrench, right? Because you're inside of a community that loves you and tolerates your idiosyncrasies but doesn't tolerate your harmful behavior. And maybe they take time to lovingly have a conversation with you. And so that circumvents the need for it bumping up to any sort of formal disciplinary action. A community group may be a socket wrench. A difficult conversation that you have with a brother or sister in the church may be, you know, the screwdriver in the tool, toolbox. Friends sitting down to study the Bible together where lives can encounter what the Scripture has to say about a variety of situations, maybe that's the, the sandpaper. And all of these things are valuable and useful, and at 99% of the cases, probably far more than that, Discipline takes place in an informal way where just lives bump up against each other and there is natural, inside-of-friendship accountability. It's the unusual and it's the extreme case that Paul is talking about here where it's done in an institutional way. And here's what it should feel like if it's ever done. And in 15-plus years of ministry, of ordained ministry at least, I've been in part of this process one time, and it took a year and a half to process through that. It should feel like, for everyone involved, it should feel like an intervention. What happens in an intervention? A family comes forward with anguish and with tears and with the greatest affection for the person that they are talking to. And a family says, finally, after years, most of the time, of extraordinarily time-tested, radical patience, they say to one of their, their own, we have to cut you off so that we can get you back. That's what it should feel like. It should feel like a family intervention, not a judicial setting, where the church cares enough and loves its members enough to care about their lives and to do something about it. We have to temporarily cut you off in order to get you back. And we're talking here, mind you, about people who have taken vows to the church. These are people, and you'll notice as we have membership vows, the person in this process knows what they're getting into when they join the church. They actually take vows to submit to the government and the discipline of the church, informally and formally. So it's not just foist upon someone who is unknowing and who is outside of the church. This is something that happens for insiders, as it were. House rules for the church don't apply to outsiders, and we've got to be very careful 
Because even those things that appear to be a universal norm in the Bible, the moral, the sexual teachings of the Bible, don't in any way give us some sort of license to judge those outside the church. And Paul perhaps anticipates this because in verse 9 he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, greedy, swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world altogether. He's very clear about this. And really this word associate is a bit too weak because the term means to mix indiscriminately. To mix indiscriminately. He's not saying that you should or even that it's possible to isolate yourselves from all the bad people out there as a means of protection, to create some sort of holy huddle, and inside of it you're safe. It's not at all what he's saying. And how does Jesus live his life? He lives a life of faithful presence, committed to the gospel in the midst of the world. And the church and you as an individual, we are to reflect that sort of incarnational presence where we love the cities we inhabit, where we love the people that we rub shoulders with. You see, somehow Jesus had this extraordinarily high commitment to biblical ethics and morality, and yet it made him irresistible to the very people that you would think would be alienated and irritated by him. And on the other hand, his radical acceptance and welcome of all sorts of people repulse those who should be most sympathetic to his moral teaching. Isn't the complaint frequently made of the church that we have that entirely inverted? And it's often true that we tolerate all sorts of, frankly, BS in the church and then judge and scrutinize people outside who don't even know Jesus. What does Paul say? Call each other out. Tough words, complicated words. So maybe you're thinking, where's the gospel in all of this? Where is that encouragement that you promised me at the very beginning? Well, notice something, and we'll wrap up here. Verse 7, something very fascinating. Get rid of the old yeast. Remember what we talked about what yeast was very briefly. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. In Jesus Christ, if you're in the church, you really are unleavened. That is, you are pure. You are clean, present tense. When Jesus died on the cross, you see, He was the true Passover lamb, the one in which everything symbolized in the Passover came to fruition in one person. Do you remember that strange story back in the Old Testament of the Exodus where God was coming to rescue His people from Egypt? And the angel of death, after so much conversation with Pharaoh and so much patience and so much time, the angel of death is coming to pass through Egypt. And Israel is instructed to put the blood of a sacrificial lamb on their doorpost, signifying that they are God's people, that they are underneath His protection, that this household belongs to the house of God. And to prepare for this, the Israelites were commanded to get all of the leaven 
out of their house to prepare for the coming Passover. Well, notice, this is fascinating. Paul completely inverts that. It's exactly backwards. The true Passover lamb has been sacrificed, so now clean out the leaven of the house in light of that once and for all event. Do you see what he's saying? Going back to what we talked about earlier, that grace comes first. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed for you. Therefore, clean out the leaven of your own heart and of the church. The church is to be a pure representative of what happened on the cross of Jesus. Do you get this? This is what the church has to say to a wandering brother or sister. And this is what we have to say to our own souls, that you're not living under the narrative of the gospel. Come back and receive the care and the direction of Jesus. And what does that look like when that person comes back? Full protection, full acceptance, full embracing love, full favor, full forgiveness. That's what we're inviting people to return to. That's what we have to invite our own hearts to return to day after day, that the Passover lamb is sacrificed, therefore live unto Jesus, not live unto Jesus, therefore He will love you. The order is incredibly important. And if we diminish the seriousness of sin, we actually miss it. We actually miss the significance of the Passover lamb. It's only, friends, the loved sinner that gets to see this, and only a community that knows of this kind of hard-won forgiveness can move toward each other in love, toward each other, towards a wandering brother or sister, not with a frown and not with scorn and not with a sense of disapproval, but with the gospel. Come back because you are loved, because the Passover lamb was sacrificed for you. Come back. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we are grateful for being a part of this community that you love, that there are responsibilities to it as individuals, but we praise you that the community has responsibilities over us, and I pray that especially the leaders here in this church would take that responsibility seriously and that we would lead with grace and with care and with favor and embrace and Father, I pray that in spite of how difficult and hard this passage must have seemed to everyone, myself included, let us be a safe place. Let us be a place where people are not afraid to fail, where people don't have to pretend they're something that they're not. Let there be the aroma of Jesus and the grace of the gospel that is sufficient enough to draw us out of ourselves and not be afraid to express our need and to admit our shortcomings. And then as a church, let us be um, restorative towards that person. And Lord, I pray that this would be at the, at the center of all of this, would be the story of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, and the gospel. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.